only do I study in order to preach uh, messages, I also listen to other people's messages occasionally. And a good friend of mine who's a pastor in Greenville, South Carolina, is a guy that I listen to pretty regularly. And I was uh, on the road on Monday, after Sunday, of course, on the way to Chattanooga. And I just thought, well, I wonder what Brian preached on uh, the first Sunday of the year, uh, or the first Sunday of, you know, 2019 last week, and I go onto his podcast, and it's Luke 10, 38 through 42, the same text that I preached on. I thought, well, that's affirming. Um, We're both preaching on the same text, and I went on to listen to his sermon, and it was very encouraging and affirming and resonated with a lot of what we had reflected on and looked at last week as well. Of course, he pointed out some different things and had different illustrations or applications that we did here, but one of the things that he pointed out and used was the Jackson Brown song, Running on Empty. And I just want to read part of it to you. I put the chorus at the front of your bulletin, but I'm going to read a little bit more to you than what you see before you. Looking out on the road, rushing under my heels, looking back at the years gone by like so many summer fields. In 65, I was 17 and running up one-on-one. I don't know where I'm running now. I'm just running on. Running on, running on empty, running on, running blind, running on, running into the sun. But I'm running behind. Everyone I know, everywhere I go, people need some reason to believe. I don't know any I don't know about anyone but me. I look around for the friends that I used to turn to to pull me through, looking into their eyes. I see that they're running too, running on empty, running behind. Seems pretty indicative of our lives, does it not? If we're honest, in those brief moments when we're reflective enough, honest enough to be still, it seems that we're running on empty. And the point that he makes in the song is not only the awareness of his own emptiness, He makes an awareness of his neediness because he's empty. And he looks around for help from other people. And then he essentially concludes, oh no, they're running on empty just like I am. It's as if we live our lives in the society today and particularly in the Western world and maybe even more particularly here in America as we are pursuing this ominous American dream. It seems to me that our lives essentially are Ponzi schemes. We go day in and day out, making withdrawal after withdrawal, only getting paid from the earlier withdrawals, and then finally, you don't have to be a math genius to know that those economics don't work. At some point, withdrawals outnumber deposits, and when they do, We run on empty. And we run on empty for a little bit, and then running on empty leads us to a place where we really don't run at all. And it begs the question as we think about this series overarchingly what's it all for? So Jesus said explicitly two different times in the Gospels, what is it? Or what good is it? What gain is it if a man gets the whole world yet forfeits his soul? 
Now, candidly, Jesus is speaking more eternally than the application I'm about to make for us with regard to that question. But think about the question. What good is it if a man gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? What good is it if you make more money than you know what to do with? What good is it if you find the person that truly, finally, ultimately makes you happy? What good is it if you have the right house, car, wardrobe, or even the perfect vacation? What good is it if you get the group of friends you always wanted? What good is it if now you've got the perfect workout routine, diet, and you finally weigh that magic number? that you've always wanted. What good is it if you get the job, get into the school, or in the right social circles? What good is it if you retire comfortably, yet forfeit your soul? What good is it if not only do you participate in Bible studies, but you lead them? What good is it If you possess exhaustive theological knowledge and great acumen biblically, what good is it if you serve the poor and the needy, yet you forfeit your soul? Of course, you understand these things that might seem more worldly and the other things that seemingly are more explicitly spiritual. None of them shield us from the temptation of soul forfeiture. We are all tempted to forfeit our souls in the name of making a name for ourselves, finding security in and of the world. Well, guess what? We're in good company. I don't know if the company's good, but we have plenty of company, especially when we look at the Old Testament. This is exactly what God's Old Testament people were guilty of, Essentially, they were not who they were supposed to be. They were not the servant of the Lord as they had been called to be. They were not obedient. They were not faithful. They did not rest. They did not trust. They were frenetic. They were busy. They were crazy. Kind of like us, right? The holidays were so crazy. The beginning of the year, so crazy. Last summer was so crazy, as if crazy is just something that happens to us, right? Well, God's Old Testament people were so crazy not being who they were supposed to be. They were so crazy not being the servant that God had commissioned them to be that the Lord provided people like Isaiah to speak into the chaos to speak into the craziness, to speak words that were poetic and poignant and transformative. Specifically towards the end of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah writes four servant songs where he speaks about a servant that is not Israel. He speaks about a servant that is the true Israel. He speaks about a servant who is doing everything that God's people were not doing. He speaks about a servant that was also called Messiah. He speaks about a servant. In fact, in today's text, 
this servant speaks about himself autobiographically as the Messiah, also known as Jesus. So as you hear these words in Isaiah 50, know these words come as the Lord's chosen servant, the Messiah, whose name is Jesus, speaking about himself. Stand with me. As we hear the words of the servant speak into the chaos and the busyness of our lives, calling us and inviting us to rest. Isaiah 50, starting in verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, we pray this morning that you would show us your truth and that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. A few years ago, Emily and I were at a local restaurant with some of our friends here in town. It was a place that we frequented often. It was a place that we really enjoyed at the time. It was a place that was pretty progressive. Uh, They introduced this concept, not sure you've ever heard of it, farm to table, right? So you grow things on a farm and they end up on a table. And so anyway, this restaurant was um, a little progressive by Knoxville standards in that it was one of the first farm to table restaurants in Knoxville. So we liked to go there. It was fun. It was a great small atmosphere, very well accomplished chef that was running this farm to table restaurant. It would not be uncommon, for example, for us as a family when on Saturday mornings we were down at the farmer's market, we would see the chef At the farmer's market too, getting some of his farm fresh goods in order to put on the tables that night, particularly Saturday, which is, you know, kind of the climactic point uh, of the week and the night of a, and the life of a restaurant. And so we were in there on a Saturday night with a group of friends and it's a great night. Food's great. Fellowship's great. The chef finishes plating his last meal. And at this point, like the minions take over, right? They, They can do the desserts and plate the stuff that's already done. The chef has done his last, you know, cook uh, as far as the actual uh, meal in the restaurant. And so as he's making his way out of the restaurant, he's kind of, you know, wandering through, talking to people real, uh, you know, just very jovial and comes to our table, which is pretty close to the door. And we'd talked to him before. And so he kind of lingered for a minute. We were talking about our meal. And then I spoke up and I said, hey, where are you headed next? Like, you know, at the end of the night, what do you do at the end of the night? Where are you headed? And he turned to me and he said, Waffle House. And I had the same reaction you did. I thought, well, that's hilarious. How ironic. This is awesome. I mean, like, you know, farm to table, this and that and the other. Here's the chef. He's the maestro. And then he's just going to the Waffle House. But the more I thought about it, I thought, you know, that's not great. In fact, it's kind of sad because what he had just done was crafted masterfully and beautifully, really throughout the whole week, but particularly on that day. These amazing meals that he thought about, 
that he prepared, that he prepped, that he delivered, that he served for other people. And then what did he have left for himself? Nothing. Essentially, Waffle House is synonymous with numbing, right? And we get this, whether it's literally the Waffle House or not, we all have a Waffle House. In fact, all of us have many Waffle Houses. A few years ago in Newsweek, there was an article called The Working Class Smoker. And they were basically dialoguing about why so many people still smoke, particularly in rural areas, now that smoking education has been prolific and it's essentially reached all the ends of the earth. Everybody knows smoking will kill you. And one sociologist weighed in into this study on this article on the working class smoker, and she said the primary reason that so many people, at least in these areas that they studied and looked at, continue to smoke even though they know it will kill them, is this term that she coined called defiant self-nurture. Defiant self-nurture. And it was most exemplified as she was talking to one woman who smoked that worked at a country diner. And she said, here's the deal. Everything else I do in my life is for other people. When I have this cigarette, these 15 minutes are mine. It's the Waffle House. It's defiant self-nurture. It's living outside of limits and boundaries in a way where we give ourselves so much to others, what do we have left for ourselves? One leadership book that's directed towards pastors, but I think it has application to all people, says this, we grow busier and busier to please more and more people. We spend more time in meetings than we do in prayer. We scarcely have time to read the newspaper, much less spiritual classics or devotional readings. We study Scripture, and once again, this is specifically talking to pastors, but I think it will relate to you. We study Scripture, but we do it for other people to convey God's Word to them. Our own hearts are often thirsty for a word from God, but who has time? We faithfully minister the spiritual needs of others and teach ourselves to be content with the leftovers. Think about that as a parent. Spiritually speaking. Think about that as a spouse, as an employer, as a friend. About the myriad of other roles you carry in your life in which you, like me, live outside the limits of humanity. Live outside the boundaries of faithfulness. And therefore, we find ourselves needing to numb We find ourselves needing the Waffle House. We find ourselves needing to defiantly nurture ourselves. Even Mother Teresa says, or said, I am told that God loves me, yet the reality of darkness and coldness and emptiness in my soul is so great that nothing touches it. Yet she was doing amazing things for other people. And I'm not saying that she did not know God. Clearly she did. But what she was lacking and missing was the rest of God. You've heard me say before that my friend who's a pastor says that Jesus came to give people rest and to remove guilt. And Christian communities, primarily the church, makes people feel guilty and calls them to be busy. 
I'm here to declare that's not what we're about. In fact, I was talking to somebody recently just on a personal note, and she very graciously was saying, I pray for you. I know what it's like to be a pastor. My son is a pastor. I worry about you. People expect so much from this and do that and do that. And that's true really about all people in all culture right now. I said, I hear you. Thank you for praying. It's good for you. I'm not saying just because I intended to do this, this is going to be it. But one of the reasons that I wanted to plant a church versus take over a church is I was committed to building into the DNA of this community this principle. The rest of God. Living within the limits of humanity. Not functioning outside of boundaries. Why? Because of our text today. You know why? Because Jesus didn't do that. Jesus did not live outside the limits of his humanity. Jesus did not live outside the boundaries that the Father provided for him. And I would simply say this, if Jesus needed to depend on God, if Jesus needed to rest, if Jesus needed to be limited, how much more? Or maybe a more pejorative way of asking it would be, who do we think we are? What we see in Isaiah 50 in an overarching way is that this servant, the Messiah, who is Jesus, can do your own scholarship to figure it out later, just trust me. The Messiah, the servant, who is Jesus, overarchingly depends on God the Father. It's the main thing I want us to see today. And if Jesus needed to depend on God the Father, how much more do we need to? If Jesus needed to cultivate rest and solace and refuge with God the Father, then how much more do we need to? You see the quote at the front of your bulletin from Paul Miller from his book, The Praying Life, which is fantastic. He says, Jesus is, without question, the most dependent human being who ever lived. Now, before I keep reading the quote, let's interject here just for a moment, just to make sure you're with me. What if someone said that about you? Would you take that as a compliment? Jesus is, without question, the most dependent human being who ever lived. He is inviting us into his life of a living dependence on his heavenly father. He is telling us to realize that, like him, we don't have the resources to do life. When you know that, you, like Jesus, can't do life on your own, then prayer and dependence and resting makes perfect sense. The amazing thing about our text today, especially on the heels of last week, Luke 10, Jesus, unlike the chef I mentioned earlier, eats what he serves. He practices what he preaches. He told Mary in Luke 10, or he told Martha about Mary, she's doing the one thing that is necessary. 
What is the one thing that is necessary from Luke 10? It's abiding. It's resting. It's connecting. It's sitting at Jesus' feet. And what do we see Jesus doing in Isaiah chapter 50 with the Father? The very same thing we see Mary doing in Luke 10 with Him. He is sitting at the feet of the Father. What is He doing? This is what I want us to explore a little more deeply. He's learning. He's listening. He's speaking. He's obeying. And He's resting. What does it look like to depend upon the Father the way that we see Christ doing it in Isaiah chapter 50? It looks like learning, just even in our disposition. It looks like listening, speaking, obeying, and ultimately resting. But something I want to be very clear about here. We are going to look at Christ today as an example, unapologetically. However, don't miss seeing Christ here as our Savior as well. If we only preach or read Christ as an example, you're going to be beat down and beat up, and you're going to be trapped in legalism and moralism. Because what we're looking at here is God Himself in the flesh, or speaking about Him becoming flesh and doing that in the flesh, but He's perfect. We will never be Him, but that does not mean that we can't look to Him as an example, as a mentor, as a leader. But don't just see him as that today. See him as a savior. We'll talk about that at the end as well. Let's first just recognize in this text, and of course there are verses that precede this and verses that come after it, but just for our focal point, I wanted to camp within these verses Right here, but one of the things that we see right away about the dependency of Jesus upon the Father is that He's ready and willing to be a learner. Kids, I probably need to speak to you more often. Maybe I can speak to you right now for a minute. I know your parents want you to learn things, I know your teachers want you to learn things. In many ways, your life is characterized by learning, learning sports. This is how you juggle, this is how you shoot. Learning school, this is how you add, this is how you subtract, this is how you do pre-algebra. Learning the rules of the game at home, this is how you clear your place, this is how you hold a fork. Your life is about learning. Adults, shame on us for not thinking that we are learners too. We are perpetually to be learners, especially spiritually speaking. But it's hard to learn. Winston Churchill said, I always like to learn. I just don't want to be taught. That's true about many of us, right? Even kids, you can understand that. You're like, yeah, I like the idea of learning. I just don't like my parents or my teachers teaching me. Well, we're like that too. Even the great Winston Churchill was like that. But thankfully, this servant that Isaiah speaks about was not like that. Is not like that. He's got a disposition of humility. Therefore, he sees himself as a learner. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are what? Taught. He embraces that he needs to be taught. That I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning, he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear 
as those who are taught. The second way that we see this servant depending on his father is not only that he's got a disposition of learning, but that he listens. He listens to the father. And what we get in the text here is not a one-time listening, but what one commentator says, prolonged attention. This servant has prolonged attention to God the Father as he listens to him. It's a discipline that the servant has learned, it seems, according to Isaiah. This servant has disciplined himself to listen to the voice of God. God is speaking. However, it does seem, at least in my experience personally, and even when I look at the Scriptures, that God rarely screams. God often is not on a PA microphone. It seems that God, as we see in the Old Testament, at least normatively, I would not say exclusively, but normatively, whispers. And what does it take to hear a whisper? It takes stillness. It takes us to be quiet. The commentator goes on to say, the morning-by-morning appointment is not a special provision or demand related to the perfect servant but it is the standard curriculum for all disciples. What he's basically saying is, this is not just what Jesus was supposed to do. This is what we are supposed to do. I'll reread it. The morning-by-morning appointment is not a special provision or demand related to the perfect servant, Jesus, but it is the standard curriculum for all disciples. He goes on to say this, and this is amazing, and I hope this communicates to you. Note that the servant does not simply impose this discipline on himself. Alec Motier says this. Note that this servant, Jesus, does not explicitly or exclusively impose this discipline of listening on himself, but he showed his discipleship by responding to the Lord's discipline and regular approach to him. Paraphrase. Lest we misunderstand. Even Jesus in this passage, the servant, according to Alec Motier, says, is not to be praised ultimately because of how disciplined he was to show up every day before the feet of God in order to listen. The ultimate thing to be praised in this is the discipline not of the servant and not of us, but the discipline of the Father to show up every day in order to speak. That's a totally different maxim and paradigm when we think about cultivating a relationship with God in this thing that Americans call a quiet time. Oftentimes we think a quiet time is about us showing up The truth is, it's about God showing up and we're there to witness it in his word and in prayer and in meditation. And it seems that this servant, Jesus himself, understood that because when the Father speaks, he listens. He's attuned to his voice. Those of you that do have 
crying babies and children or have had crying babies and children. It doesn't matter how many crying babies there are. If your baby's crying, you know which one is yours. Or those of you that are musical, I'm not. No matter how many notes are interspersed into a piece of music, when a note is off, you know it. This is what we see from the servant with his father. He listened and attuned his ear in order to speak. Mark Buchanan in his book, The Rest of God, says this. If people are stopping to listen to you, he's asking a question. Let's think about that for a second. I probably don't give you enough time in sermons often to pause. Does anyone ever listen to you? I know you think no, but I mean literally, yes. Everyone in here has people that listen to them. Mark Buchanan says this, if people are stopping to listen to you, who are you stopping to listen to? All authority is derived. Either God gives us words or we're only giving opinions. Our speaking comes out of our listening. What we say comes from what we hear. What are you giving your children? Just a question. Like your best thoughts on life? doesn't mean that they're worth nothing, but when I think about my own words, it would be foolish for me to say that they are the words of eternal life. But Jesus says his words are the words of eternal life. Just a suggestion, it might be a good idea to speak the words of Christ to other people, because if we don't, we're just giving opinions. And look, my job is to speak to other people publicly, one-on-one, and I can't tell you how hard it was through a particular season of my life when I was doing campus ministry, when I was neglecting my soul to the nth degree in this regard, yet I continued to preach and teach and meet with students, like hordes of them on a weekly basis, and sit in coffee shops and sit other places. And essentially it amounted to me meeting with students and just giving them Brent's best philosophy on life. What a waste of time. A waste of time for them. And you know what it feels like to me? Empty. In fact, not only does it feel empty, it just feels wrong. If I'm only giving people my words. Because all authority is derived. Of course, we could go on this on and on and on. Think about it in the political sphere. I know you read a blog. And you might have read an article and watched a show. But why does that make us experts on every ideological or political issue that exists in our culture? doesn't mean that we can't speak into them. But oftentimes we hold things so firmly and so strongly, it would maybe just be a good idea to ask, why do I know what I know and why do I believe what I believe and why do I say what I say? And it might be all good reasons, but for most people it's probably not. But that's not true about the servant. He spoke out of what he heard. We love to talk on things we don't know about. Ain't it like most people, I'm no different. We love to talk about things that we don't know about. 
Not true of the servant. Very true of Israel. Very true of me and you. What did the servant say when he spoke? So he he was a learner, he was a listener, and then he spoke. And this is where it's really amazing. An amazing definition, I think, of what it means to care for people just in general. And then an incredible definition of what ministry is in this passage. Do you see it here embedded in the middle? He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turn my head not backwards. I'm sorry, verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught. In order to do what? Why does God give Jesus a word in order for Jesus to listen, in order for Jesus to teach others? God the Father teaches the Son in order for the Son to do this to others. To do what? Sustain him who is weary. With what? A word. What is the servant called to do morning by morning? Every day of his life, even now, even at this moment, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, ruling and reigning, what is Jesus doing? He is sustaining those who are weary with a word. What is ministry? It is sustaining him who is weary with a word. What is caring for other people? It is sustaining those who are weary with a word. Where does the word come from? We speak from what we hear, it comes from the Father. How often do we need to receive this word according to Isaiah 50? I don't know. How often did the servant need to receive it? The text tells us that the servant, the Messiah, Jesus, needed morning by morning to awaken his ear as one who was taught so that he may be able to sustain him who is weary with a word. How much more? How much more do we need to hear God speak to us? And we can talk more about God speaking, and particularly if you would place yourself outside the boundary of Christianity, this is probably one of those things that Christians just assume. Oh, you know, God speaks. Don't you know, God speaks. It's just an assumption we make, and I'm sorry we make assumptions like that. Just to be very clear, The most specific way that Christians believe God speaks is through the Bible. God speaks through creation. Romans 1 tells us that. But most specifically and even specially, the clearest way to hear what God is speaking is simply to read the Bible. We actually believe that the Bible does not talk about the Word of God. We believe the Bible is the Word of God. And that's the Word that He speaks to His people. That's the wisdom that He provides. That's the comfort and the consolation that He provides for weary souls. What soul is not weary? So we see this servant cultivating this dependence and responsiveness to the Father as he learns, as he listens as he speaks, and then he's obedient. And this is really amazing. Verse 5, The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And I mean, I don't want to be irreverent here, but like that was Jesus' job description. 
Okay, Jesus, here's what I need you to do. It's called redemption. Dot, dot, dot. Of the entire world. And this is the way it's going to work. You're going to take on flesh. And when you take on that flesh, you're going to go to earth. And you're going to live a perfectly faithful and obedient life. And it's not going to be easy. Because indeed you have taken on the nature of a servant, as Philippians 2 speaks about with this beautiful theological concept of kenosis. And when you do that, it's going to culminate culminate at this point where you're going to be handed over to the Roman authorities. And at that point, by the way, you're going to be tortured. And at that point, you're going to be provoked like you've never been provoked before. Oh, and by the way, at that point, all your closest friends and disciples are going to desert you. Oh, and furthermore, these people that are torturing you, according to Isaiah 50, they're going to pull out your beard. They're going to spit on your face. They're going to whip you to the precipice of death, but not kill you until they put you on a cross. And then, and only then, will you ultimately taste death. That's your job description. And the servant, because he's the true servant, does this. What we could never do, what Israel was not doing, nor could they ever do. The servant does this. But here's what I want us to not miss. How does he do it? According to Isaiah 50, through his connection, abiding, and dependence on the Father. Now, I know we're not commissioned. It's not our job description to save the world. But we are called to live faithfully in the world. We are called to be disciples. We're called to make disciples. We're called to worship. We're called to glorify and enjoy God forever. How? Through dependence. Through what we see lastly here, this servant learns, he listens, he speaks, he obeys through faithfulness, and then ultimately, and you don't see this in the text here, it's in verses 9 through 11, he rests. So the servant says, this is what I do each morning, therefore I'm commissioned to go do this, but essentially it's as if he asked the question, how am I going to do all this? And the text tells us that the Lord God will help him. The sovereign Lord will help him learn, listen, and speak, obey, and rest. Because the Lord, the sovereign Lord, has vindicated him. This servant, the Messiah, Jesus, experiences this rest and fulfillment and a life that God has called us to experience. I want to end with something I said at the beginning. What does it, this sermon has essentially prescribed, according to the text, and I think accurately, this is a text that has application just built into it easily. What does it look like to live a full life? What does it look like to live a life that rests in God? We depend. We respond to the Father. How do we do that more specifically? 
We put ourselves in the position of learning. We listen. We speak. We obey. And we rest. That's it. That's what we do. But here's a question. What happens when we don't? Like what happens when you don't awaken your ear morning by morning in order to be taught? What happens when you don't live within the limits of humanity? What happens when your life is outside the boundaries? What happens when it's so crazy and chaotic that dependent, responsive rest would be the furthest description of you? Then what? This is why the gospel is good news and not good advice. You have a servant who has done all those things for you. And that's what we rest in. We rest ultimately in the fact that the servant morning by morning awakens his ear. That the servant learns, that the servant listens, that the servant obeys, that the servant speaks, that the servant rests. And that's where our hope is. Our hope is not in us doing that, but our hope is in the fact that he has done that and is doing that, and this is the beauty of it. Because he has done it and is doing it, we now can feebly seek to follow him responsively and do it too. Let me close this in prayer.